Hi everyone, this is James Rudd, the Digital Media Editor at Heart. Uh, Welcome to this episode of the podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor David Newby, who is the Chief Investigator of the recently published Scott Hart trial. The Scott Hart five-year data was discussed and presented at the ESC meeting recently, and uh, we have a very full and interesting discussion about this trial, which was one of the most uh, important, but also controversial, I think, uh, discussed at the recent ESC meeting. Professor Newby goes deep into the uh, some of the criticisms and response to those, and also tells us all about what he thinks the implication of Scott Hart will be for clinical practice. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. If you do, please leave us a review, like, subscribe, share, all that stuff. Tell your friends about it. Uh, so we can reach a bigger audience. Thank you very much. Dave, many thanks for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Uh, Dave, the one of the biggest trials, I think, at the European Society of Cardiology was the Scott Hart five-year follow-up study. Uh, and I wanted to get you on the podcast really to to tell the audience about the results of that about what you think the implications are for testing of people with chest pain and also perhaps to address some of the the criticism it was a very widely discussed trial at the ESC and since then but perhaps we can start by asking you to summarize the study I know it's been published the one-year data was published a few years ago and this was the latest publication of the five-year data is that right that's correct yes yeah. so um, what we did in the Scott Hart trial is we um, took patients who'd been referred by a primary care physician to their cardiologist for an assessment of chest pain. And in the UK, we often have what we call rapid access chest pain clinics. So patients can be sent up very quickly and assessed in a cardiology outpatients clinic. And principally, you're looking to diagnose angina due to coronary heart disease. And uh, what we set out to do in the Scott Heart trial was to ask the question, well, CT, coronary angiography, what's the role of that in addition to standard of care? So um, it was very much uh, a trial adding in a CT scan on top of a a standard clinical assessment uh, rather than uh, what some of the trials have done is a head-to-head comparison of functional versus anatomical testing. So we did this across uh, around uh, 12 centres across uh, Scotland, central belts of Scotland. Uh, There were three imaging centres uh, and over a three to four year period, we recruited uh, just over 4,000 patients, 4,146 patients. Um, and uh, we randomized them at the end of their clinic to either the CT scan or an assigned score. The assigned score is um, the, essentially the, a Framingham risk type score that's been calibrated for a Scottish population. So it's a very good cardiovascular risk tool. Uh, and we wanted a control uh, prompt. So after... Um, a few weeks, um, the clinicians were writ- wrote to with um, uh, clinicians were written to with um, either a CT scan report or uh, an assigned cardiovascular risk score and asked to document what had changed since they'd seen them in the clinic. Did they change the diagnosis? Did they change their treatments? Did they change their investigations? And the, the initial paper um, uh, that we published uh, three years ago in the Lancet described the fact that patients or the clinicians were much more confident and certain about the diagnosis of angina due to coronary disease. And actually what they did was they increased uh, CT angiography, increased the diagnosis of coronary disease, 
but actually reduce the diagnosis of angina due to coronary disease. And that's because I think people tend to over-treat people a little bit just to be safe and sure. Uh, but actually the CT gave them confidence that actually some of the patients they diagnosed with angina didn't have angina due to coronary disease. We pre-specified right at the beginning of the trial that if the CT scan did identify more coronary disease uh, and um, if it then led to more treatments, we should see a reduction in clinical events. And we specifically picked coronary heart disease death and non-fatal MI because uh, coronary heart disease death and non-fatal MI is obviously the most relevant to a CT coronary angiogram. And what we presented at the ESC was the five-year follow-up data. It's published simultaneously in the New England Journal of Medicine. And what we found is that after five years of follow-up, um, patients were 40% um, less likely to have sustained a fatal or non-fatal myocardial infarction if they'd had a CT scan. And there are a number of interesting observations surrounding that as well. I've got a copy of the paper in front of me, so I'll just add a few more numbers. So the, the first paper, as you say, published uh, in The Lancet, uh, led to a better diagnosis or clarified diagnosis of coronary artery disease with changes in uh, therapy for the patients, more preventative therapy and more angiography. And uh, I think that was at 1.7 years of follow-up, death due to coronary heart disease or non-fatal MI was lower in the CT arm. Uh, but didn't reach statistical significance. And then in your five-year paper, as you say, New England Journal of Medicine, uh, there was a just over 40% reduction in the primary endpoint, of which most of it was accounted for by non-fatal MI. Uh, that's right. Yes, very much so. Um, but um, the actual uh, point estimate for fatal MI was of a similar magnitude. So it was just the number of events was lower. Um, uh, uh, for the fatal events versus the non-fatal events. And obviously it'd be interesting to see in 10 years' time whether uh, we have more events and that uh, that will continue also to show uh, uh, an approximate halving in mm, events. Absolutely. And uh, the initial paper showed higher rates of CT, sorry, higher rates of invasive angiography in the CT arm, as I guess you might expect. But at five years, the rates of invasive angiography was similar across the two groups, but far more people in the CT group received preventative therapies, it says here, than in the standard group. So almost 20% versus 15%. Yeah, so there were two issues there, I suppose. Firstly, um, the initial trial results, people were saying, well, you've got a borderline effect and you've increased angiography, you've increased revascularization. That sounds like a very costly scenario where you've not really made a big impact on treatment and yet you've increased uh, invasive angiography and revascularization. I, I don't think we should apologize for that early surge um, because obviously the CT scan is finding the disease. And that's what it's meant to be doing. Um, but what was interesting in the five-year follow-up is that with time, that excess of treatment actually disappeared. And in fact, uh, by five years, the rates of invasive uh, in angiography were slightly higher in the standard care group than the um, CTR. And we did a, a nice little um, uh, landmark analysis rationalizing that after a year, the revascularizations, the angiograms that were triggered by the CT should be all over, done and dusted. So if we looked from one year onwards, the CT arm had a lot less um, invasive angiography and a lot less coronary revascularization compared to the standard care arm. Presumably because it was all done and dusted, as you say, within a short yeah. time after the CT scan. Yeah, and I think what that tells us is the CT arm got the right treatment early on and it prevented them coming back. 
Whereas a standard care arm, there were patients being missed and they reappeared, they had uh, events, they needed more angiography. And so um, actually you're delaying what they really needed by not doing it. And that's what the CT provides. It tells you who to treat and when. Really is a fascinating study um, and reading some of the response. Uh, the editorial was was uh, very, very supportive of the study. And in the editorial and also in your conclusions in the paper, you talk about what might explain the uh, 41% reduction in the primary endpoint, given that this is a, a trial of a, a CT scan. A lot of people said, well, hang on, it's a CT scan. How can that reduce outcomes? But you argue... Uh, I think quite convincingly that this is due to both earlier diagnosis of coronary artery disease and then effective, uh, should we call it secondary preventative therapies. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and why you think yes. people uh, don't believe the study in terms of how the outcome can be so massively reduced by being by having a CT scan? Yeah, I think there are uh, a couple of um, uh, points to be made there. Firstly, what we saw was that the event curves um, in the first two months, actually, were overlapping in the two groups. It was only after um, 50 or 60 days did the event curves actually separate and you start to see an effect. And that's exactly what you were saying, James, in that um, this is a diagnostic test. It's not a treatment. So for a diagnostic test to have an impact on outcomes, it's got to change treatment. And when we looked into this in prescribing data, we found that it took on average 50 to 60 days for the, the prescriptions to be dispensed and the patient to start changing their treatment. It took on average two weeks to get the CT done. The CT obviously has to be then reported, fed back to the clinician who then has to feed back to the GP before ultimately changing the treatment to the patient. So there's a time delay there. So for me, that early overlap in the first two months is reassuring that there's no bias here. This is the events are the same, and it's only when the treatment changes do you see a flip. Now, um, people have started to talk about the magnitude of the benefit. How can 40% reduction be uh, possible? Um, well, I think it's very possible, and the reasons for that are that not just one treatment changed. Firstly, um, I think there are early the early separation is attributable to two things: aspirin uh, and uh, angiography. Now, don't forget that these patients were referred to a rapid access chest pain clinic, and many of them had new onset symptoms. And new onset stable chest pain actually is an unstable situation, as you know. Recent onset angina is a type of unstable angina. And I think the early benefits are attributable to early initiation of aspirin and undertaking invasive angiography and revascularization to prevent those non-fatal events. Uh, I think the later benefits are going to be mediated through statin and lifestyle changes. And clearly when you're told that you do or you do not have current disease, that does change your behavior. Uh, and what we saw in the Scott Hart trial is that the CT arm was associated with more aspirin use, more statin use, and as we've discussed, more early revascularization. And if you add all those hazard ratios together uh, and work out the percentage of proportional benefit, then you are talking of 60 to 80% relative risk reduction. So I think 40% is, is indeed very plausible. Okay. And the other issue that, that, that people have raised is the difference between the results seen in the PROMISE trial, which is a slightly different study, and perhaps you can address that, and your own Scott Hart trial. Yeah, and actually that's a, a misunderstanding of the data, which is quite strange in a way. So PROMISE 
his end point was all-cause mortality, non-fatal MI, hospitalization for unstable angina, and some procedural complications of which there was a list. Now, Scott Hart was coronary heart disease death and non-fatal MI. Now, if you take the PROMIS data and pick out all-cause death and non-fatal MI, because they couldn't actually separate out cardiovascular death very easily in all the patients. Um, actually, PROMIS did see uh, borderline statistical significance, a reduction in all-cause death and non-fatal MI at uh, 12 months. So actually, the PROMIS data aren't that different to the um, Scott Heart data, which of course also had a borderline significance early on at 1.7 years. So the benefit here is that we, are, unlike PROMIS, have been able to look at the five-year follow-up data. So actually, uh, if PROMIS had followed their patients up, I suspect, using our endpoint, they would have seen a similar sized effect. Do, do you um, know if they're doing that, Dave? Is, is PROMIS five-year expected? They, yeah, no, unfortunately not. Uh, they couldn't get funding to do the follow-up, which is a shame. And the other thing to say is that also some observational data from um, Denmark has also reported exactly the same sort of effect size. So I think across trials, uh, this is very plausible. Uh, and um, the trials actually are very consistent in that, uh, in that reduction in those clinical events. And in terms of how this might affect guidelines, I mean, here in the UK, uh, those of us who work under the NICE system, uh, CT angiography is is uh, front and centre as the first line test, but that's not the case in in Europe or America. Do you think Scott Hart is going to affect the guidelines in due course? I certainly hope so. Um, I think um, uh, I think there's no other non-invasive imaging test that has shown to impact on outcome, and I think the totality of the data is consistent. I think we see a clear benefit here in terms of reducing the events that we worry about, fatal and non-fatal MI. So I would hope that this would be reflected in the changes to the guidelines because um, if you other tests have not been able to demonstrate this. So if we are in a true evidence-based era, we should be using the, the, uh, the test that has been shown to make an impact to our patients. So I do hope so. One of the final things, James, that we should perhaps just touch on is that people have also talked about and the potential bias of the Scott Hart trial in terms of using routinely collected electronic health records data. I think uh, what I've already described to you is that CT angiography also increases the diagnosis of current disease. So if you were to say which way would you bias the result, uh, you would expect that perhaps the CT group to overdiagnose myocardial infarction because there's more known coronary disease. And of course, we didn't see that. We saw a reduction. Um, the other thing that I would highlight is that routinely collected data are um, a fantastic resource to be able to follow up patients cheaply, quickly, and easily. And we have validated it against clinical trial data. So we looked at endpoints within a proper formal randomized clinical trial and adjudicated endpoints and compared those to routinely collected data, and they agree at 95%. And just for the non-trialists in the audience, Dave, can you explain what you mean by routinely collected data as opposed to yes. data within a trial? Routinely uh, collected data basically relies on electronic health record systems that we have in Scotland. So all hospital admissions, uh, all deaths, uh, all procedures, and all prescribing practice are available to us. So we can uh, effortlessly almost go in and just look at what happened to our patients, what drugs they were prescribed, whether they were admitted to a hospital or not. Uh, and across Scott Hart, we had 
we lost to follow-up was only 66 patients over the five years and those 66 patients were lost because they emigrated outside of Scotland over the five-year period um, so we really have very robust follow-up um, so uh, we know exactly who has been admitted with what what procedures they've had and what drugs they're taking yeah it's a fantastic resource and uh, one that I think will we'll see being used more often as electronic healthcare records become more commonplace. Dave, one final question. What's next for the, for the Scott Hart team? Have you got, is there anything you can talk about? Are you planning another Scott Hart two or something else along those lines? Yes, we've got a number of studies actually ongoing. The, the first one is um, with uh, Alistair Gray. Uh, he and I worked together quite a lot on previous trials and uh, uh, he's leading the rapid CTCA trial which is asking the question of doing a CT in the emergency department, this time with acute chest pains, um, and um, whether that influences management and outcome. Um, that does include some patients with uh, NSTEMI uh, and troponin-positive chest pain, um, not otherwise specified. So this is quite a higher risk group. And in fact, we know the event rate at 12 months is around 7%, um, so a lot higher than Scott Hart, which was uh, around 2% at two years. So a much higher risk group and so it's going to be interesting to see how CT plays out there. Um, we're also doing something called target CTCA uh, which is looking at patients who are discharged from the emergency department with chest pain and whether CT and troponin has a role there. And finally we're also thinking of maybe Scott Hart too uh, to look at um, comparing a risk score with a CT for primary prevention um, because we did see within Scott Hart that um, those with non-anginal chest pain also got a benefit. Uh, and actually, we should. the message of Scott Hart really was stop, you know, get rid of the guessing game, just look to see if someone's got the disease, and we want to apply that to a primary prevention population. Where instead of guessing with a risk score, we actually just look to see if you've got coronary disease and treat you only if you have coronary disease. So a suite of uh, further studies that we're very excited about. Well, brilliant. Thank you. It's been a, a really good discussion. And perhaps if you could sum up in a couple of sentences the the final Scott Hart take-home message, what should we be doing with our patients who present with stable chest pain? Yes, I think in patients presenting with stable chest pain that uh, CT coronary angiography is the first line test of choice because it increases your certainty of the diagnosis, so it helps the clinician. It helps the patient by making sure they get the right treatment at the right time and they uh, can avoid potential downstream heart attacks. And the NHS benefits because we get the right treatment at the right time, it increases um, efficiency of the system uh, and at minimal if any excess cost. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor Newby. Uh, I will put a link to both of the Scott Hart papers in the show notes so everybody can go and read them. And thanks for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. 